You're on the Plants Grow Here podcast. I'm Daniel Fuller. Come along with me as we enter a hidden world of deep horticultural, ecological and landscape gardening knowledge with featured experts, industry professionals and enthusiasts. In episode 106, Karen Smith interviewed Dr. Kate Neal about the mental and physical benefits of therapeutic horticulture. But we could never cover the whole topic in one interview. In this episode, I interview Kate about barriers that keep people out of gardens and how we can knock them down so that more people have the opportunity to use public and private spaces in a meaningful way. Kate's a childhood studies and disability studies researcher with a particular interest in the individual, social and societal benefits of time spent in green spaces for vulnerable groups, including children and people with disability. She also runs her own therapeutic horticulture consultancy, Digability. I hope this episode challenges and inspires you to think more deeply about who's included in the usage of spaces that you design, construct or manage. Welcome back to the show, Kate. Thank you so much. So exciting to be here again. Yeah. So I guess let's just kick this episode off by defining the term horticulture therapy. Like, is that just a fancy term for gardening? Oh, no, I don't think so. I mean, it can be as simple as gardening, um, but I think that there is an intention that um, you bring into gardening activities or into a space or the design of a space which really, um, when done well, is a person-focused approach to their sense of place and well-being and, um, and esteem, that just gardening for the sake of gardening um, may not um, utilise or exploit um, properly or, or to the fullest of its effect. So... I actually love when I'm in the garden with people when I'm sort of practicing therapeutic horticulture as a part of my um, my research. When someone has a bit of an aha moment, when they realise they're not just gardening, that actually this is giving them something um, bigger or giving them something more meaningful about themselves and their sense of place and belonging and well-being. Um, and for that, I think. That's where the magic lies. I also think, um, you know, like horticulture isn't just gardening. Horticultural therapy isn't, or therapeutic horticulture isn't just gardening. I think, you know, we bring a set of skills without trying to big note or sound like, you know, the know-it-all academic or researcher. We bring a set of skills to the way that we design a space or that we design a program or that we intentionally work with people in that space. Um, that, yeah, builds upon all of those theories that we understand around well-being and belonging and then we're using the garden or the acti- gardening activities as a context for making those moments happen. I see. So it's, yeah, much wider than just simply, you know, me going out the backyard and pulling out weeds, although that is a part yeah. of it though. It's totally a part of it, like absolutely. And I think much my aha moment in kind of discovering this field was knowing that going out into my garden after a long day of um, typing away at my PhD in a sterile library was just allowing me the space for all those thoughts to filter through my brain, to breathe some fresh air, to, to feel something, like to have a tactile experience with nature, nothing that was happening as I was tapping away on the 
plastic keyboard in under um, uh, fluorescent lights. Um, and so I think it, it really was that awakening of this, this feels good. And we hear gardeners, you know, it kind of feels intuitive when you're talking, when I'm talking about this topic in a room full of gardeners, everyone's just nodding, knowingly. Like, yeah, I know, I know how that feels. I know why that person's experiencing much. Totally. As a gardener, you know, there are also stressful moments too, though, and we have to work through that. Like, for example, when the possums ate all of my tomatoes, that was not so therapeutic. (laughs) No, but we we have to think about therapy sometimes as not just making lovely experiences for us, and sometimes it might be around problem solving, like developing the skills to problem solve Mm. or resilience or experiencing loss or overcoming loss. Um, and so often there's a, a large gambit of, inf- of um, emotions and experiences that we wrap up in therapeutic horticulture. Sometimes it's about acknowledging that you cannot control everything in your environment. Um, and with that is the ability both to problem solve and to feel, to have resilience around that and just acceptance as well. What can I control here? And also what does it matter? Sometimes I think we really catastrophize problems in our world um, that are happening around us, but we do overcome them and we do move on. So for me, the garden, I remember every time there's a hailstorm and I lose all my vegetables and it only seems to happen just as the corn's ready or as, you know, the capsicums are about to be picked or it always just seems to be the most, the best, worst time for it to occur. And it is just that life lesson of sitting there and going, oh, I can't control everything and it's a chance for renewal. Okay, well, now I'll actually redesign my veggie patch the way that yeah. I you know, realised six weeks ago was probably more efficient anyway or, you know, kind of the glass half full approach. That's a really great point. I think the temptation when you lose all of your tomatoes to the possums is to, is to catastrophize it, as you said. But you know what I did? I went down to the grocery store and I bought tomatoes. So maybe that's an opportunity to feel grateful. Yeah, totally. And also, I mean, the thing that I have learnt probably most out of being a veg patch grower myself now is how much effort goes into growing tomatoes or how long you have to wait for corn to mm. actually be ready. And I really don't understand how carrots can ever be 99 cents a kilo. No. It just to take so long for me to, well, like a straight <laughs> carrot. So it's kind of that whole thing where suddenly you're appreciating the supply chain a little bit more, as we know, through all the um, devastation of floods and drought and all, you know, all these kind of climate changes as well what that means for our food production too. Absolutely. So, Kate, your background isn't in horticulture. Can you tell us a little bit about your pathway into the space? Yeah, absolutely. I, um, As I mentioned before, I was doing my PhD, which was actually around uh, children's understanding of ethical consumption, so what kids knew about organic produce or free-range chickens or even where our iPhones were made or where their toys were made or their clothing was made, um, and to have kind of big conversations with children aged age 12, I had to think of some really um, uh, accessible methodologies. So how do you articulate that conversation to kids so that they can understand it and talk to you about their um, views and opinions and experiences with that? And while I was working um, and doing that, I was sitting alongside a woman who was an expert in disability studies and we really kind of 
got together and enjoyed conversations around this idea of accessible methodologies. How do you have big conversations with people who are not used to having that conversation? Or typically we don't have the language to have um, those conversations. And so I joined her project, which was looking at the relationships between paid support workers and people with disability. Um, and when I was working on that project and analysing the data, there were lots of examples where relationships between paid support workers and people with disability um, was working really well in garden spaces. So it might have been in people's backyards, it might have been just while outside doing gardening, sitting in a, a green space, a public green space, and certainly um, around community gardens as well. And that really piqued my interest because I remembered what my garden had done for me and I thought, gosh, isn't this interesting that this seems to be a common theme um, that is continuing. And so I just kind of thought, I'm just going to follow my instincts of what the type of research I actually want to do um, and what I find interesting and what I have a passion Mm. in and it led me to therapeutic horticulture. That's so interesting. I find the fact that horticulture is really helping facilitate the connection between these two human beings and, you know, between this human being and themselves and helping them to interact with the wider world. I find that so fascinating that you weren't even looking for that and you just found it. Yeah. And and I'm a sociologist, so my area of interest in research is in these interpersonal connections between people and how do they occur, what are the contexts which occur, how do we enable and what are the barriers for it. So I guess when we're talking about gardening, whether that's, you know, gardening careers, whether that's just building a garden that people can get into and enjoy, what does the term accessibility mean? I think generally when we hear the word accessibility, people mostly think about the physical access to a space. So how we think about the, the width of paths or how there'll be tables where a wheelchair might be accessible, um, might have access to it. Uh, we think about uh, raised garden beds. We think about it in terms of those physical accessibility um, considerations. I think there's a bigger picture around accessibility that we need to tell. In the first instance, how do we ensure people even know this space exists? And I'm thinking about in terms of public spaces. How do we make yeah. sure there's a bigger range of people who have the right to have access to this space, know that it exists and that they can use it. Um, I think then, yes, we talk about the physical accessibility within that space. I think we then need to talk about how we make knowledge of the space, about the space and within the space accessible. So who's the keeper of the knowledge? What ways are we communicating it Um how are we communicating it? So what are the discourses that are wrapped around that culturally as well? And then how can that be shared more widely and equitably? And that might be thinking about things like plant labeling. So, you know, how do we choose to communicate that? Which base of knowledge are we taking from that? Like is it a colonial base of plant knowledge? Um, how are we thinking about the different ways that we can communicate the knowledge of the plants within the space in a way that is accessible to the broadest range of people. And this isn't just a conversation about disability. We think about the children. We think about people whose English is perhaps not their first language. We talk mm. about people with low literacy. talk about people who prefer alternative modes of communication. 
And so I think we need to have those accessibility conversations around those ways as well. Mm. I think it's very poignant that you begin the conversation on getting the message out there because let's say that we have um, a garden that's specifically made to be inclusive to people in wheelchairs and then we don't have a sign on the front and then we've just got people in wheelchairs driving past every day and they don't even know that it exists. Totally. And I think in some spaces, you know, this becomes a political power play where neighbours love having a public space next to their house, but they don't want a whole bunch of neighbours knowing that it's there. Um, or, you know, we talk about really nice parks in certain socioeconomic areas um, and who has access to that space, who's considered a desirable visitor and who isn't. Think about the ways that different people need to utilise that space so people who are housing insecure are often very unwelcome in public spaces as well. Um, but really, as a member of the public, they should have the right to the space. So then we start to have this conversation around what is unauthorised or undesirable um, behaviour and thinking about that as a society in terms of, well, you know, is that because that's just generally how we feel about it or should we be challenging that and say, is there an opportunity within this green space, this public green space, to um, include a that's a really interesting point that you're making here. Can you provide some specific examples of how we can do that? Yeah, well, I think, I mean, um, making culturally safe spaces so that where people come in and they actually feel welcome. So thinking about how we typically conceptualise the use of a public park perhaps um, as a white Australian and we think about it with the barbecue and the table and chairs, whereas in other cultures they would perhaps think about cooking in a different way or they think about the way that they don't sit at a table but they prefer to sit in a circle or they would utilise the ground or different hardscapes within that space. Um, absolutely, I don't think the green, it's green space's jobs to solve homelessness, but what is there a way that we can provide safe spaces for people to rest when during the day when it's safer in a way that is slightly more considered than just kind of moving people on? Like we see all that aggressive architecture where park benches are designed so no one can lie down on them. Why do we do mm. that and should we be doing it? I think it's just a, a broader sort of political conversation to have. When we think about um, the way that children use those spaces, um, think about what children are interested in, um, how we conceptualise them as these kind of young people and play, which is really important, but how do we involve them perhaps in um, broader societal issues such as food security and climate change, which we know children are um, involved in and concerned about as well. So how can we create those spaces perhaps in our community gardens to um, foster more environmental stewardship in our younger generation or our people with disability. We don't often assume people with disability, you know, we think about them having a nice day out in the garden, but we know that they're concerned about things like climate change and uh, we know that they have issues with food security as well or different um, kind of societal issues. So thinking about how can we include them in this space so that all of the garden is accessible to them, not just 
department or not just you mm. know, one aspect of it. But they, everyone has this kind of that equitable right to the space. Mm, well said. I think when some people think about accessibility immediately, you know, inside of the box thinking points us straight towards people with disabilities um, and, you know, some of the things that we can easily put people into a box like that. What it sounds like you're trying to say is that it's, we're really just trying to take on all of these different cultural values and we're trying to include as much of that as we can into our decision making. I think, yeah, it's about challenging like it's really about challenging our perceptions of who uses this space and how they use it and actually having the conversation about the space or about the activity and looking at the people who will use it and, and thinking about co-design collaboration and um, and not falling back on the old design principles or the socioeconomic information that we had from five years ago or ten years ago. Um, and it's about staying in that continued dialogue through the lifespan of the garden because we know that demographics change in different geographical areas. So how can we change our, the way our parks or our gardens look uh, in a way that reflects those changes in society as well? Mm. Can you tell us about what the difference is between accessibility and inclusion though? Because I think those two things really sound the same, at least they, they did to me before I heard your talk at the IIH a couple of weeks ago. Yeah, absolutely. So accessibility, as I said, is really about how do we have access to the space, things that we do within the space, knowledge about the space. Inclusion takes that further and it says how do we enable people to come in and provide that access and have them participate in a way that is meaningful for them. Um, and so that's really about leveraging their interests and their experiences whilst they're uh, evaluating their contribution and finding out what that contribution might be um, and basically making, really instilling that sense of belonging for them, that they have somewhere that they can go, um, that they feel that their contribution there is valued um, and that they can meaningfully participate when they're in that space. So it's a, a place of um, connection and value for them. Um, and that's quite yeah. different to just making sure there's a wide enough gate or a, um, a table that a wheelchair can put under or raised garden beds. That's about providing that sense of purpose within that space for people. And so in terms of the programming, therapeutic horticultural programming um, that I do and talk about and consult on, for me, that's really saying who are the people that are going to be using this space, meeting them, hearing about their lived experience, their interests, um, their expertise, never taking anyone at face value or based on assumptions, which, again, we love doing around disability but also mental health as well, and together building the garden um, or doing the gardening together and having a shared vision for that space where each person is cared for, respected and valued whilst they're in that garden. And that's what inclusion is, that I'm, um, I'm valued somewhere, but also I'm expected somewhere. And if I'm not there, I'll be missed. And I was at a, a program that I run on the Gold Coast on Fridays and one gentleman was away a couple of weeks. And when he came back, I said to him, hey, where have you been? You've been really missed. And I, I didn't mean that like it was some sort of, you know, I thought it wasn't appealing to his ego. 
But it was like, yeah, well, people have really noticed you haven't been here for a couple of weeks. Yeah. And he was shocked. He was like, really? I was like, yeah. And he goes, and, and that just gave him such um, validation, I suppose, that he belonged somewhere because it wasn't really necessarily what he was doing week to week. It's the fact we really missed him when he wasn't there. And to me, that's what inclusion is and knowing that you have a right to be in that space and that uh, right is valued. Yeah, it's a beautiful thing. I mean, that's what I want in my life. I want to feel valued and included. I think everybody probably wants to feel like that. Absolutely. So what are a few practical ways that we can actually encourage people with all different backgrounds to utilize our spaces, be included in our communities as well? Like if if we're creating a garden, is there any way that we can help to foster that? Yeah, absolutely. I think the main thing is recognizing whoever, you know, we seem to be in this role as the keeper of the garden or the keeper of the program that I think the onus is on us to critically reflect. Um, and to think hard about how we can include um, people of diverse backgrounds or um, because the onus shouldn't be on them to assimilate or to come up with all the fantastic ideas. I think, you know, when we talk about a social model of disability, it's acknowledging that the barriers to participation actually exist in the systems, um, i.e. where the garden is and how it was put together and how it was designed not in the willingness of the person with disability to be a part of it. So we shouldn't be asking them to change. We should be sitting mm. back and critically reflecting and thinking, so what is this space? Who do we want it to involve? Are we being inclusive? Are we addressing those um, issues of accessibility? And in asking ourselves those questions, we should be turning to the exact people we're hoping to involve and say, your participation matters to us. And we want to get it right. And we know the best way to get it right is to ask you. So we're not making decisions based on our own knowledge of what we think makes something inclusive or accessible, but we're actually saying to them, you're the experts in your own lives and you're the experts in all the barriers that have ever stopped you from participating in a program like this or a garden space like this. What can we do better so that we're not upholding those sort of barriers into the future and continuing that dialogue alongside them. So lots of co-design, lots of collaboration I think is important. Yeah, I think that's very well said. So I think something that was really interesting as well, you kind of brought it up at the beginning of this episode, but I kind of wanted to touch on it again, it, which is the, the relationship between how important carers are in, the, in relationship to accessibility for people with disability specifically. Can you speak on that? Yeah, I think um, they're both really important and not necessarily important at all. I think, you know, <laughs> carers, it really depends on who the carer is. I've seen some most fantastic um, carers in the disability space who um, not only see the full person that they're caring for and they understand what motivates them and what you know they're good at and what they love doing. Knowing all of that, for me, they're often a really great translator for me or they're kind of my cliff notes in getting to know somebody. Um, and when a carer does that well, they enable that person to participate fully and they've just got their back when someone like me falls short and 
isn't communicating clearly or doesn't understand their preferences or, you know, isn't getting um, the, the full picture on who that person is. I think when carers aren't necessarily doing that job well, it's when they're speaking for the person, they're making assumptions about the person's interests. Um, or sometimes it's just that the carer is so enthusiastic about gardening that we tend to forget who we're in the garden for. <laughs> and so I often try and flip that and therefore use the carer's um, enthusiasm for gardening and the person with disabilities' um, enthusiasm or willingness to engage in their thing. And I make that as a really nice opportunity that they can come together and have this shared interest because I think when we have shared interests and we're working alongside each other and perhaps we're sharing the power dynamic in that moment, that again is when relationships are fostered as well. So, um, yeah, so, you know, again, it really depends on the person, but um, I often think it's when the carer sees that person for their absolute best um, and is willing to, wanting me to see that just as much in terms of how we can be utilising that person's interest in gardening. I think that that sort of an energy can be brought to all of your relationships as well. Totally. Well, with children as well. So, again, there's no difference between teachers. Some teachers are really great and they just understand the importance of letting children experiment and their sense of curiosity and play and imagination and that all that messiness is um, in the experimentation of children in the garden is where children learn and it's what excites them and, you know, they want to break rules and they want to see how things can work and, and it's just the teacher's role really to help harness that, direct the attention in the right ways and kind of keep the children safe, obviously. Um, mm. But, you know, on the flip side, it's when teachers get really prescriptive about how the garden needs to look. And, and I see this my daughter's school not so many years ago, they had a um, community garden, a kitchen garden, and I asked her why, you know, who plays in the garden? And she kind of thought the word play was a bit strange to use in that context. And she said, well, you have to pick up, uh, you have to go through the bin to get the recyclable foods, like the compost waste oh. out. And if you do that, then you get access to the community garden. And I said, how do you feel about that? She goes, it's weird to feel like you have to be punished to go somewhere you want to go. And I thought, oh, that's really interesting. So it was this, this system of like, well, we'll instill environmental stewardship and then they can get into the garden was deterring mm. the children because that's not, you know, they, they were really excited about getting into the garden, but they didn't want to go through pick up everyone else's apple pools, which I thought was fair mm. enough as well. So, yeah, um, we often in the children's wellbeing space talk about, and this is the work of, um, the Centre for Children and Young People, where I've worked for about the last decade, is um, around children's wellbeing is based on voice, choice, control and um, working together with adults. And when children have voice, um, when they can uh, have a choice in, in, say, how the garden looks or what's happening in their school grounds, when they can have some control, so perhaps they can see um, that their, their choices are being heeded and, and they can see their design coming to life. Um, but it's when kids are out in the garden with adults um, that it has the most positive impact on their well-being. And um, that's really fascinating, I think, because, again, as a sociologist, it comes back to these interpersonal 
interactions within the garden and the positive impact it has on people's well-being and sense of belonging. Yeah. I think that it's really interesting to hear that, um, you know, these these relationships happen better with adults present. Yeah, this research was done in primary schools, it should be said. We know from um, children's uh, social development and the ways that they develop as, as people that their relationships with adults is, whether it's parents or teachers or significant others in their lives, is really, really important for their development. So um, in those primary years, especially, um, they need to build those strong trusting relationships with adults um, as a part of their cognitive and social development. So the garden does provide a really great space for that to occur, but of course in schools there's a, a numerous ways that it does and does not occur. Hmm. So we we talked about accessibility earlier. I just wanted to bring up another kind of related term. Can you tell us what does visibility mean in this context? So when we have when we enable people to be in a space, so we've got the accessibility and they're uh, meaningfully participating in the space, so really around the inclusion, then when um, when we see that, it increases their, their visibility. So if we're making our gardens and green spaces accessible and um, for people to meaningfully participate, whether they're people with disability, children, uh, our older generations as well, people from diverse cultural backgrounds, even when we think about it in terms of different genders and sexualities as well, when we see people out in those gardens, we're aware that they're a part of our community where we might not have seen that before. So even homelessness, to, to be honest, is another one. Um, so we realise, oh, these people are around me, they're a part of my community, they're within my social spaces. Um, and so that when, when they have an opportunity to participate meaningfully and in a positive way and gardening provides such an opportunity, um, then we have an opportunity to change the stigmas or narratives around how we see those people. Um, and so I always fall back on disability because it's where a lot of my research has been done. But we can actually change our um, preconceived ideas that people with disability are recipients of care and we can now see them as active contributors of our community uh, they're contributing to their own lives, they're contributing to their social um, circles through perhaps producing food or beautiful spaces, but they're also making a broader contribution to society as well through the beautification of the garden. Or, um, and, and so that actually, over time, if we make these spaces in a way where we're encouraging people to come in and actively participate we would, as a society, start to change the way we see those people within our space. And we would think, oh, you know, I didn't, I didn't realise people with disability could do that. Or I didn't realise um, people who were housing insecure did, could do stuff during the day, but they're actually making a positive contribution. Like they're not just the, the stinky bum type of um, stigma that gets attached to them. Um, that you know that they think that they that they've got skills, that they've got uh, interests, that they've got um, lived experience outside of whatever circumstance has brought them to in this point in time. And so, if we enable people to utilize spaces and green spaces 
in a way that shows that they can meaningfully and actively contribute uh, in their own lives and in our lives as well as society more broadly, then it does change um, the way that we see them and hopefully shift some of those stigmas and therefore elevate their status. The other thing it does, which I always love to see around children or people with disability, when they see other people like them achieving things, it makes them Mm. feel like they can do it too. And so that's what we call representation and representation matters. And we see that a lot around discussions around um, cultural diversity on our television as well. So, um, you know, if we're seeing that there's people from diverse cultural backgrounds with an interest in horticulture or who are contributing through horticulture into society, I could do that too. Mm-hmm. And I think that with visibility too, there's almost like a two-way thing going on as well. I remember you, were, mm-hmm. you had a story about um, some people, I believe they had disabilities, and they moved the veggie patch to the front yard and they got to feel that po- that they were making a positive impact on the neighbourhood because their neighbours actually had veggies in their own yard pretty soon. Yeah, I, know, I love that. Yeah, so we had um, three supported independent living accommodations. They used to be called group homes. They don't call them group homes anymore. Um, but there were three or four in this house. There were five people with disability were living um, and we had the, the, the project was to build garden beds for wellbeing. And so in this one house, actually where the sun was best, where we had best access to amenities, water, they already had raised garden beds so we didn't even have to build gardens, was in their front garden. And so uh, we built the garden out the front and the impact that that had on them, they were suddenly a part of their community, people walking down the street, it was a kind of a, a street where there was quite a bit of foot traffic going past, would stop and talk to them and say, gosh, your garden's looking good today. For those people with disability, that was really, really important because we often um, are brought up not to stare at people with disability or not to engage in them, to look away, don't be rude, don't ask questions about their disability. And it actually makes people feel really invisible. And so when you give people a purpose to talk to each other and over this is the garden, um, these are people who might not have engaged with people with disability before, certainly weren't asking anything personal about their lives, but just shooting a comment of, oh, my God, look at your tomatoes or cucumbers are looking good, it enabled that person to feel seen in their community and that was for some people something they had not experienced before. The other thing it did was actually... um where the house was set up that you'd go through the garage door into the living, often the car was driven straight off the street into the garage and the door would go down. So the neighbours didn't necessarily have a great opportunity to get to meet their residents anyway. And so spending that extra time out in the front garden gave their neighbours an opportunity to really get to know their their, um, neighbours who had a disability as well. And then it gave them the opportunity to chat and get to know each other and it was often said, you know, I'm pretty biased on this one, that it was one of the best-looking um, front gardens in the street because it was this beautiful, flourishing garden. And so for people with disability, they were making the significant contribution to the beautification of their street and they were outshining many of their neighbours um, who didn't have a disability. So, again, it sort of changed that perception of what people with disability can contribute to their own lives by way of that garden and the food they were producing for their own um, meal times, but also what they could contribute to the streetscape and how that made this street a better place to live. 
Yeah. There's no better feeling than somebody copying you. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Well, what we found is there was conversations where someone would, like the neighbour would say, don't grow basil, I've got heaps of it over here, we'll swap. But, you know, I'll take a zucchini any time. So these are these interactions that, you know, it wasn't actually copying, it was this divide and conquer. It was another reason yeah. to talk to each other. It was that sense of pride that your neighbour was taking your produce and eating it. So, and that yeah. you also thought, well, he must care about me because he's offering produce to me as mm. well. So I think any veg patch grower knows when they've got a glut that there, it, it often feels quite great to kind of hand off your produce oh. and everyone go, oh, wow, this is fantastic. So no different. Totally, totally agree. And, you know, I think it, it does make you feel good just to influence people and to see that, you know, you are making a difference. And for somebody who hasn't maybe experienced that too many li- times in their life before, to have people looking up to you and what you're doing and seeing the impact that you're making in such a tangible way must be an incredible feeling. Totally. And even to take that further, for these people with disability, generally, we're often here, not only not that they're contributing to someone else's lives but they're a drain on the system that it costs so much Mm. money so all the media around the cost of the ndis that you know they're these passive recipients of care that you know cost millions of dollars per year and yet just through the simple fact of growing vegetables we can start to change that narrative around the contribution that they make and that they're not just this drain on the system that they're they're participants, they're people in lives, you know, they're, they're people living in their community like any of us. Everybody wants to belong and I just think that that's a really interesting term and you brought that up during your during your talk at the AAH. What does that term belonging actually mean? Well, I've been trying to articulate and conceptualise this in, in my research and so it's not a perfect definition by any mean, uh, means but For me, through the research that I've done, when my participants talk about belonging in the garden and belonging as a part of the group of participants that come to the programming, we talk about having ritual, that we always start at the same time, it's on the Mm. same day of the week, um, that we generally have a flow to our work together, that it's now opening up the shed, coming up with a jobs list, tackling the jobs, Mm. coming together at the end. We always cook or eat something out of the garden because I also eat something delicious. (laughs) But also because for me it's exposed a lot of my participants to food they've never tried before. Um, And so that's a wonderful way to introduce them and then the knock-on effects for benefits of nutrition and um, and physical well-being there as well. It's about having responsibility. So that idea that, you know, I'm, I'm responsible for this. This garden needs me. Again, you know, the garden requires my care and my time and my effort. Um, and it provides us with that sense of purpose. So we have a purpose for being in this space. Um, that expectation, as I said, that you show up regularly and you be a part of something and also really important as I touched on before that you're missed if you're not there that your absence is noted um you get that social connection people get to know me they know my name um again things that we often get to take for granted but some people walk through entire days with no one knowing their name or asking how they are or uh, having a conversation with them literally getting to use your voice in the garden so whether it's something garden specific or just having that conversation with them. 
And through all those social connections, having this sense of place, I come here, I'm known, I feel safe, I have um, a purpose to being here, I have responsibilities. And then that's all person-centred, but we also have our connection to nature as well. And uh, Indigenous Mm. cultures know better than any of us what it means to feel connected to country and to feel connected to this place and I think to appreciate our temporal nature of um, we're we're here for such a finite space of time and the enormity of Mother Nature as well compared to us um, all really helps us to ground us in the space that we are. And so, yeah, so in my ever-developing definition of well-being, um, all of those things are really important to having that sense of belonging. Sorry, I said definition of well-being. You said well-being, which actually brings me to my next question. (laughs) What does that term mean? Because that's a whole other can of worms. It really is. I mean, some people just say it's the... um, the absence of illness, that well-being is the absence of illness. Uh, but um, I like to look at it, I'm kind of a conceptual person, so I love to think about it in terms of all those different elements of our, our social well-being, our physical well-being, our spiritual, our emotional and our cognitive well-being. So when all of those things we feel um, socially connected, we have the absence of um, physical ailments or illness um, when we feel spiritually connected, and obviously that can be on a religious um, uh, angle or it can be in a secular sort of way where we talk about our spiritual connection to nature, um, when mentally we feel quite well and emotionally we feel really settled. I think when we feel that there's some balance in our life in those um, different domains, then we say that we're, we have some well-being. I think I'm working with people with um, mental um, health issues at the moment and it's enabled me to realise that well-being is just a spectrum and all of these domains are sort of like, you know, your treble and bass bar and your volume and, and mm-hmm. on some days we might physically be feeling really well but emotionally feeling quite vulnerable or cognitively we're firing on all engines but spiritually we feel quite empty um, and so I think it's really important to know that that this is a spectrum that's ever-changing on any dependent day. And and when I work with my participants in the garden on Friday, I often kind of put myself on that, like, where are they on the spectrum? Because I want to know how everyone's feeling and what they want to do. But then also acknowledging that there's, I'm no different. Just because I'm the program facilitator doesn't necessarily mean that I'm necessarily more well in all of those aspects on any one day. And I think that brings that really human element to it where we acknowledge that well-being is both fleeting um, and it can change and it's also multidimensional as well. Yeah, what did the Buddha say? Life is suffering? (laughs) Well, Well, I guess that's where we garden. Yeah, totally. I mean, yeah, and... Oh, I don't know. Sometimes I think, if anything, I, I'm really good at overthinking and overanalyzing everything. So gardening for me sometimes is just the absence of thought, but I love just getting out there mm-hmm. and getting lost in my ideas and it's captured, I've realized over the years, it captures my imagination. It's a nostalgic connection to me. I'm, 
I find myself planting things or doing things in my garden that come back to my childhood as well. Um, mm. So, yeah, it's so many different things for so many people, right? Mm. Yeah, you're right. And even just listening to the birds behind you right now, that's even a part <laughs> of it for me is listening to the birds and the wind and all that sort of stuff. Absolutely, the sensory experience, even when it mm. rains sometimes. You know, you don't yeah. always, you, you don't duck in just because it's raining. Sometimes it just adds that whole new sensory element and kind of, you know, again, that sort of resilience. Sometimes you enjoy the harshness of being out there in the elements as well. That's very, very true. Kate, at the end of every episode, I always like to ask guests one final question. Is there anything else you'd like the listeners to know about? Gosh, uh, yes, everything. Um, let's talk forever. <laughs> um, I don't know. I, I, I kind of guess we're preaching to the choir here, right? Like I'm sure all of the people listening understand that sort of innate connection that we have with nature or with the garden um, and probably just know that we can all spend more time out there, but, you know, that we engaging in a green space or in a garden can just be as simple as, sitting there and appreciating it through our senses and attentively noticing the changes in the garden or like you said the bird song or the things that sometimes the noise and the busyness of life drown out and I think there's something really um, rejuvenating sometimes and recharging about making that time to sit in our garden if we've got the privilege of it um and kind of just connecting back to nature, even if it's just for five or ten minutes, always really helps. But not forget that's kind of the level of privilege and access is not assumed for everybody um, and, and kind of fight the fight that everyone should have a right to enjoy gardening or green spaces to some extent and that we've all got a role to play in changing some of those stigmas or elevating the status of others that are perhaps more marginalised or less fortunate. Well said, Kate. Thank you so much for a great episode. Oh, man, thank you. I loved it. It was great. Thank you. Who doesn't have access to the gardens you look after? It's worth thinking about. Are there barriers that you can knock down to make your garden more accessible and inclusive so that you can create a space of belonging and generate well-being within your community? If you liked this episode, scroll through the Plants Grow Here back catalogue for another episode to keep this party going. Episode 106 with Dr. Kate Neal is a great place to start.